Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Happy to have you here with me again. My guest today is true crime writer and commentator Catherine Pellinero, author of the New York Times best-selling book, Kitty Genovese, A True Account of a Public Murder and Its Private Consequences. So glad you could make the time to join me today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The murder of Kitty Genovese is one of the most infamous true crimes in American history. It's a hefty topic to tackle. How did you come to choose it? Well, you know, it's funny. I had been a playwright before, and I wrote mostly comedies, of all things. And uh, just very quickly, years ago, I was just happened to be kind of surfing the Internet one day, and I came across this website about Kew Gardens, Queens, where actually where the crime took place. And there was uh, an article about the Kitty Genovese murder. And it also included the original New York Times story from uh, March of 1964. So I read it, and I had heard of the the Genovese case. Uh, You know, the famous story that everyone heard that this woman was attacked and, and no one responded, no one came to her aid. So it just sort of piqued my interest after I read, um, you know, what was on this website. And then, long story short, I really became interested in the story. And what really interested me was at the time, there was really no information whatsoever about Kitty Genovese as a person, about who she was. All we knew was her age and that she had been attacked and uh, murdered in front of her home in Queens. And nor did we know anything about the man who murdered her, Winston Mosley. It's almost like they were minor players in this this drama that had become a very big media sensation. So I started looking into it because I wanted to know, well, who are these people? And uh, I I ended up writing the book that I wanted to read, essentially. (laughs) So the story is one that people have heard in high school, college classrooms as a textbook example of American apathy, which I'm sure we'll discuss further along. And Kitty Genovese is is simply a character in this story that proves a larger point. But but like you said, she she was a person, of course, with a strong personality, a loving family, and a really vibrant life. So tell us about Kitty Genovese, would you? Who she really was. Sure, absolutely. Well, her full name was Catherine Genovese, and Kitty was a nickname that she had had since she was a child. She grew up in Brooklyn. And when she was 19, her family, meaning her parents and her younger siblings, she was the oldest of five in an Italian-American family, uh, her parents and the younger siblings moved to Connecticut, and Kitty chose to stay in the city. And Kitty had, was a very um, ambitious person, very outgoing person. When I was researching the book, I made a point of finding as many people as I could who knew her, 
uh, both when she was a child, when she was a teenager, and then as a, a young adult. And she was she was very business minded. Uh, at the time of her death, Kitty was managing a bar in Queens called Ev's Eleventh Hour, and she had been there for a couple of years. And her goal ultimately was that she wanted to own her own restaurant and bar. And she was the type of person who went about that by learning everything she possibly could about the the business. So she was very savvy. She was always self-supporting. Um, in fact, her father used to tell people that he had never had to support Kitty after she graduated from high school. She had always earned her way. So she was uh, she was that kind of person, very very organized, very smart, as had had a great head for business. So. Um, and, and incidentally, Kitty had also been voted class clown of her graduating class. And that's one thing that people remembered about her uh, the most, is that she was the kind of person who was always cracking jokes, and she loved to be silly and goof around. And uh, So she was a fun person, you know, very, very well remembered by all the people who knew her. So that was her real ambition in life. And at the age of 28, she was living in Kew Gardens, Queens, in an apartment in a Tudor-style building on Austin Street. And she was living with a woman named Marianne Zalanko. And at the time, this is, of course, 1964, uh, officially they were roommates, but she and Marianne were actually involved. They, they were lovers. Um, Kitty was a, a lesbian. But, of course, in 1964, this is an era when admitting that could you get you fired from your job, literally, um, or and have really serious consequences. So on the night that this all happened, that unfortunately Kitty's life suddenly came to an end, she had had a dinner date with a friend of hers, a man who she knew well from the bar, and they had gone to his brother's house for dinner and then went back to Ev's 11th Hour, where Kitty worked. Now, Kitty's original plan that night was she was, because she knew she was going to be out kind of late, she was going to stay overnight with a friend, a, a woman who, woman and her husband who lived above the bar. They had an apartment above Ebbs because she had, to, oh, she had to work the next morning. But at the last minute, she decides, and this is about 2.45 in the morning, she decides that she's just going to drive home instead. And Victor Horan was a man who was, he was her co-worker, and he was really the last person to speak to her before all this happened. Uh, he said to her, Kitty, I thought you were going to stay upstairs with Evelyn. And she said, no. She says, I changed my mind. I think I'll go home. So Kitty goes out and gets in her car. And it was just one of those terribly unfortunate things, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. At the same time, she's getting into her car at the curb. A man named Winston Mosley, who's 29 years old, has never seen her before. He happens to drive by and he sees Kitty. He sees what he sees is a woman getting into her car alone, and he follows her. Now, Winston Mosley has been out with for the express purpose of finding a woman to attack and kill, as he later tells the police. He tell he once he makes this confession, he says, "Well, I was out there looking for a woman to kill." So he follows Kitty home. She parks. In a lot, it was actually a Long Island Railroad Station lot that's adjacent to her building. And she's getting out of her car, and she's locking the door, and she looks up. And we know this. We know this step by step because of Mosley's uh, detailed confession and also by the witnesses who were watching. She looks up, and she sees Winston Mosley. What she sees is a man across the parking lot looking at her. And Mosley said by her body language he thought she was perhaps a little on alert, but... For whatever reason, she does not get back in her car. She decides to start walking to her building, which she's actually quite close to. Well, Mosley starts following her. She looks over her shoulder and sees that he's now in a full run coming after her. So she changes direction and she starts running down Austin Street because her, the entrance to her apartment was in the back. But she starts running down Austin Street in front of all the businesses which were closed at this hour. This is 3 o'clock in the morning now. But there's one business at the end of the street that she figured would be open, and it was a bar. And as she hits the corner, she's screaming, help me, help me, somebody help me. And lights start going on. Uh, across the street in Austin, there is a 10-story apartment building called the Malbray. 
Well, Winston Mosley catches up to Kitty about halfway down the block, halfway down Austin Street. Incidentally, they were almost directly across from the entrance, the lobby to the Mowbray apartment building. And he stabs her twice in the back with a hunting knife. And Kitty lets out an absolutely shattering scream and, and says, oh, my God, he stabbed me. Somebody help me. Help me. And now there are many lights that have gone in, on in the apartments and people are opening their windows. And there's a man on the, who lives on the seventh floor of the Mowbray and he looks out and he sees the, them on the sidewalk. He sees Kitty crouched down and the man standing over and he says, leave that girl alone. So Mosley sees this and he turns and he runs. And he actually goes back to his car, backs it up, backs it down a side street. So Kitty gets up and by... A witness account, it took her perhaps a full minute to get to her feet. She's been stabbed twice in the back at this point. And she uses a parked car and a tree for help, and she's whimpering, and certainly she must have been disoriented. So she starts trying to make her way back to her apartment. And at the time, you know, she's still saying, you know, help me, and she's whimpering and crying. Well, she's got to go all the way around the building, around the corner and to the back to get to the entrance to her apartment. And there are people watching her. Now, later, there, you know, people, most of them said, well, we didn't realize that she was injured. We weren't sure what was going on. We thought maybe she was drunk. Um, but, of course, we know that wasn't the case. So Kitty makes it around to the side of the building, and this is, you know, one of the most heartbreaking things that uh, three witnesses said that they heard her say, if somebody doesn't help me, I'm going to die. So she gets around to the back of the building, and her uh, the door to her apartment is about four doors down, but she can't make it. She comes to the first unlocked door and opens it, and she collapses in the hallway. Now, at the top of the stairs, there are two apartments, and in one of these apartments, there lives a man who she knows very well, a friend of Kitty's from the neighborhood named Carl Ross. And she begins calling to him, and she says, Carl, it's Kitty. Help me. I've been stabbed. Well, Carl Ross who later admits that he was awakened when he first heard her screams, uh, is apparently scared and doesn't know what to do. Uh, first, he goes to his telephone and he calls a friend of his and says, um, you know, someone's screaming in my hallway. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And the friend tells him, well, call the police. So instead of doing that, Carl Ross gets out and he climbs across the roof and goes to another neighbor's apartment and knocks on the door. And he tells this neighbor, who's also wide awake, this is another neighbor who heard Kitty scream and was watching her stagger down the street, and she says, well, you know, Kitty's lying in my hallway and, or, and saying she's stabbed, but I don't want to get involved in this. And the neighbors, the two of them, Carl Ross and this woman, stand there discussing what they should do. And at the time, they can hear Kitty saying, help me, it's Kitty, I'm stabbed, help me. Now, while all this is going on, Winston Mosley has gone back to his car, and he stayed there for, he estimated, about 10 minutes. And when he doesn't hear any sirens and he doesn't see anyone out on the street, he decides no one's going to help, and he's going to go back and look for her. So he goes back down Austin Street, and he looks in the storefronts, and he follows the blood trail. He starts following the blood trail to Kitty. Now, we know his movements very precisely, not only because of his own confession, but because of the numerous people who were watching him when he came back. Mosley goes to the to that unlocked door, and he later said that he, he almost just turned around and went back to his car because he figured she had made it home. But he figures, well, you know, he's going to try this one door anyway. And unfortunately, tragically, he finds Kitty. She's lying on her back on the in this narrow hallway because she couldn't make it up the stairs and she sees him and lets out this powerful last scream that can be heard all the way around the block. We know that because of the witnesses who said they heard it around the block. And the last cry is of help me, help me. And then Mosley takes his hunting knife and stabs her in the throat. And after that, she cannot call for help. He sexually assaults her. He stabs her numerous times in the chest and in the stomach. And during this assault, the door opens at the top of the stairs, uh, mostly estimated two or three times. 
Now, it's always been assumed that Carl Ross was the person who opened the door, and he did. He it, At some point, he did admit that he was... Uh, that he opened the door, but I also believe the neighbor in the other apartment opened the door as well. So Mosley finishes his attack. He leaves Kitty mortally wounded, and he takes off, and he goes back to his car. In fact, a milkman who saw him afterwards, who came shortly after the attack, remembered seeing this man just sort of sauntering down Austin Street as if he didn't have a care in the world. So Carl Ross and the neighbor have gotten... Another neighbor involved who calls, and they call a woman named Sophie Farrar, who lives across the hall from Kitty in the Tudor building. And they tell Sophie, you know, Kitty's in Carl's hallway and, and she's hurt. So Sophie goes running down and, and there's another neighbor named Greta Schwartz, an elderly woman who had gone down with her. And they find Kitty and... Sophie screams at Carl Ross to call the police, call an ambulance, and finally, Carl Ross does. He calls the police 30 minutes after Kitty's first scream. Uh, a squad car is on the scene within two minutes because the uh, police station is actually quite close to the, to the neighborhood. And Greta Schwartz holds Kitty. Uh, Kitty can't speak at this point, and this is her, you know, she's in her death throes, unfortunately. And Kitty dies in the ambulance shortly thereafter. So that's unfortunately, very sadly, how she met her end. All he would have had to have done is to open the door, drag her into his apartment, and lock the door. Well, he would have had to, lock, to drag her up the stairs, but I mean, yeah, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, maybe even ask the guy who lives across the hall, hey, can you help me? her up the stairs? Yes. I mean, there's many, many things that could have been done. So, yes, it's, it's, it's tragedy all the way around. So the area of Kew Gardens in Queens, part of what separates this murder from the 600 or so, I can't remember exactly the number you use in your book, I mean, approximately 600 murders that happened that year in New York, is that it happened in quite a wealthy neighborhood kind of an idyllic place to live, right? And that is what made this especially shocking for New Yorkers at, at the time. Well, um, it was, the particular section, I mean, it was certainly middle class to upper middle class. You know, it was very, it wasn't Beverly Hills, but I mean, it was certainly a very nice neighborhood. And it was also a very, um, I guess you would call it, a, I don't know if cozy is the right word. But uh, there were a lot of local businesses that had been there for quite some time, and um, a lot of the people had lived there for quite a while. So, yes, it was definitely considered one of the most desirable neighborhoods, um, you know, a really beautiful part of Queens, and it still is. I mean, to this day, Kew Gardens is still a really lovely place. So, yes, I mean, that really added to it. You know, when the details came out about, well, what's wrong with these people? Not only that it was a nice neighborhood, but that there were so many. Because when Kitty was first attacked, I mean, she was under a street light. And she's in front of the Tudor building, which had uh, uh, several apartments on the second floor, businesses on the first. And then across from, of course, the Mowbray apartment building, which is 10 stories. So, and, and the fact that it played out over such a long period of time. You know, she's attacked and she's wounded. A neighbor yells and the, the man runs away. And then it took it took some time for Kitty to stagger around the building, you know, to go around to the back of the building. And there were all these people watching. And uh, unfortunately, if just one had shouted to her, do you need help or should I call the police? Uh, but no one did. No, no one did. Can you talk about the discovery of the body and how the police investigation proceeds from there? Sure. Well, the police were on the scene. The first squad car got there in two minutes and immediately called detectives, uh, you know, when he saw the condition of the victim. So the, the first detectives on the scene arrived when Kitty was still alive, while she was still in the hallway. So they launched their investigation immediately. And, of course, you know, once the, the uh, police cars and the ambulance showed Neighbors started kind of coming out onto the street to see what was going on. So the police immediately start talking to everyone they can. They're questioning people in the tutor. They're questioning people 
uh, across the way at the Malbray. And then, the, interestingly, the Malbray apartment building had um, an elevator man. And they questioned him because the elevator man was stationed right in the lobby. And the, the police pretty quickly pieced together that she had been attacked uh, around the corner, right on Austin Street, directly across from the Malbray entrance. And, of course, there were the bloodstains there. So they questioned the elevator man, well, did you see anything? Because if he was at his post, he should have been right across the street from this. And he won't, at first, he won't tell him anything. No, I didn't see anything. I went downstairs. I, I went, I took a nap. So they know that he's, you know, just not telling the truth. And I spoke with the detective who was there when he was first questioned. And the police know right away that he's, no, they don't know why he's not cooperating, but he's not. So they actually take him down to the station. And it's a full 24 hours before this man admits, okay, yeah, I did see him stab her. You know, so he saw, saw the first attack very clearly and knew what was going on. Unlike some of the people who thought, you know, they were awakened in the middle of the night and just heard, you know, the screams and thought maybe this was a lover's quarrel or somebody was drunk. He actually saw the stabbing take place, but he just he did not want to get involved in it. So, you know, this is kind of the thing that the, that the police were confronted with because they went and they were questioning as many people as they could. And, and numerous people gave statements and you know, the police would ask, well, why didn't you call? And sometimes the answer would be, well, I wasn't sure what was happening. I just wasn't sure. But some of them told them straight out, well, I didn't want to get involved, you know, or I was frightened. Um, and once this story became big news, which happened uh, two weeks later when the big story came out in the New York Times, and it's, it's important to note that the, the story was in the, the smaller papers in, like, in Queens before, you know, the story about how these neighbors just sort of, you know, let this girl die. Uh, but then there were some, um, there were comments that got even a little more disturbing. There were some people, more than one, who said, well, at, at one point I, I heard the screams and I thought maybe a girl was being raped, but if she was out at that hour by herself, it served her right. And, uh, you know, comments of that nature. And uh, that, that, that's a quote, actually. And another who said, well, if that girl had been in bed where she belonged, this never would have happened. You know, sort of blaming the victim and, um, you know, really disturbing. But I'm, I'm sorry, I digress. To get back to the police investigation, uh, the, they did extensive canvassing and took their statements and took statements. And they were able to trace, sort of trace the mechanics of the crime very quickly. Uh, but as far as suspects, I mean, they started investigating everyone, questioning Kitty's coworkers and, you know, anyone who might have a clue was she on the outs with anybody. And, you know, we're coming up with nothing, which is, of course, the, the case on stranger on stranger violence. And it was just sort of happenstance that uh, just six days after the crime, Winston Mosley is arrested during a daylight burglary. And they bring him down to station, and the detective who's questioning him is really perplexed about why is this guy breaking into houses. Winston Mosley is 29 years old. He's married. He owns a home. He has an excellent job that he's held for 10 years. Um, and just nothing. He's got a couple of children, and nothing is adding up to this man. This seems like the good citizen, not the guy who should be breaking into houses. So as Mosley keeps talking to him, he admits to more and more home invasion burglaries. And the detective is really a little, as he says later, he's a little put off by how cold Mosley is. He's never met anyone quite this cold. And he figures there's something more here. And eventually they, he asks Mosley about a series of rapes that have happened in Queens. And Mosley pretty quickly confesses to those. In his same cool, calm demeanor, he just never loses his self-possession. And one of the detectives recalls the murder in Queens of Kitty Genovese. And he recalls the suspect car because suspects did say there was a, they saw the, the murderer get into a white Corvair and drop away and, and excuse me, and drive away. And when Mosley was arrested, he was driving a white Corvair. So they just, one of the detectives asks him about Kitty Genovese and they see, they see the scratches on his hands. 
And pretty quickly, Winston Mosley just kind of gives a little smile and very calmly says, okay, I killed her. And it sort of goes from there. And they take his confession. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. I've read a lot of confessions and a lot of books, and I have to say this was a really odd one. He seemed maybe not resigned, but almost relieved. He was evasive at first when questioned, but after they pressed him, I mean, I believe you write the reason that he confesses, he later admits, is because he was worried the police would persuade him, I think is the word that you use in whatever way he imagined the police might persuade him. It was just a really odd confession. And and not only does he, he lay out in his confession the murder of Kitty Genovese, but he admits to multiple murders, right? Yes, he does. And, you know, I actually have, I'm not even sure. I have some theories about that. I got to know Winston Mosley because I, you know, we corresponded for years. I thought, you know, the book would not be worth writing unless I learned something about him because I want to portray him as a full human, too. And I don't think until... Uh, Winston Mosley was a sociopath, and they classically have very little insight. And I don't believe he ever knew completely why he confessed the way he did, but I I have a theory about that. Um, I believe that there was a part of Mosley that wanted it to end, because had he not confessed, uh, the police never would have you know, they wouldn't have gotten him, certainly for, for this case. I mean, he was a very intelligent man. He wanted it to end because there was a there was a real split there with Mosley. On the one hand, you know, he had this very violent side of him, that um, this violent predatory side, which was fueled by a lot of rage, um, you know, to go out in there and harm women. But if this, then you have this other, this man who's leading a very decent life, you know, according to his wife, he was a wonderful husband, and I, I believe that. Um, you know, very good to both of his parents, who were a little bit, 
well, the classic dysfunctional family to the to the max. Uh, so anyway, you you know you have these two sides to Winston Mosley. You know the, the one side of him, and, and I I believe that Winston Mosley, he certainly recognized, you know what he was doing was was, you know just despicable, and and even said that you know I really can't. There's sometimes I can't believe that I actually did these things. Um, and I, I, that's my theory. I think that at some level Winston Mosley wanted it to end because had he not made those confessions, you know, there's no way that the police would have put him together. In fact, the, def- the detective, when he first started confessing, was very skeptical and thought at first, well, maybe this guy is just one of those serial confessors because there are people who do that. You know, they can, they'll confess to crimes that they did com- didn't commit for attention for notoriety or for, you know, whatever reason. So I, that's what I think. I believe that Mosley, you know, he struggled with this, this evil side of him, so to speak. And he, he wanted to bring it to an end. That's, that's how I feel about it. It's so interesting to me. You have such specific information about Mosley's upbringing and and you're able to share really intimate details about his backstory which we don't really have time to go into during this interview thoroughly. But were you able to, to glean these insights from corresponding with him directly? Did he reveal things to you that, that he hadn't revealed to anyone else? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I should point out that um, I asked him very, very little. Uh, you know, Over the years, I asked him very, very little about crimes, either Kitty or, or any of the others. Uh, first of all, I really didn't need the info because his confessions had been so detailed and the police investigations were really quite good. They were very thorough, so I had all I needed on that. But my focus, and it, and this is the way when I write anything, my focus is on the person. I wanted to know who he was, not what he did. Uh, because knowing the who, is to me, is, is absolutely key. So I regularly asked him questions about... Um, you know, childhood and, you know, friends that he had and, and interests that he had and hobbies and books. And, and that's a lot. Of, a lot of our correspondence was, you know, this book or that movie. And um, and that's how I felt like I really got to know him. Um, and, and that's important. That's really the only way you're going to you're going to get to to know somebody. So, yes, the things he revealed to me. Well, first of all, his. The situation with his parents was, you know, without going into, into a lot of detail, his mother, I believe, was a sociopath. Uh, she wasn't violent, but she was, you know, completely cold-hearted. You know, she had um, abandoned him when he was eight, and she would come back into his life every once every few years, and you know, thoroughly self-centered person. But interestingly, he never, um, he always spoke so glowingly of his mother. You know, when he wrote to me, he um you know, never had a bad word to say about her. And in fact, after I had known him for a while, I, you know, I actually asked him, like, you know, don't you resent the fact that she, she left you or, and, and his response was no. He says, because I knew if I ever needed her, she would be there for me, you know, and it was really kind of sad because I mean, he was a very elderly man at the time we were having this conversation and, you know, he still didn't as intelligent as he was. And he, he really was, he was quite brilliant in a lot of ways. He just did not have that insight and could not, um, almost couldn't conceive of the fact of, of the rage that he had for his mother, that underlying rage that there really must have, must have been there and, and I think drove a lot of, a lot of what happened later on. I wanted to ask you as well about some of the very specific details you were able to report about Kitty's relationship with Marianne. Did you get those directly from Marianne? Yes. Yes, I did. Yes, and that was, um, yeah, the couple of interviews that we had, that you know, it was... They were really I, touching. Yes, yes, and, and and I wanted them to be. And, you know, to write books like this, you have to ask people questions. You have to take them back to places that are difficult and and things that are upsetting because, uh, you know, I mean, my interviews with, with Marianne on the one hand were wonderful in the sense that she really did help me, you know, bring Kitty to life and, and talk about their relationship in very human terms, but it was very emotional for her. And, you know, that's what's, what stood out to me that, um, you know, even all these decades later, she still had such feeling 
for this woman and and she was so affected by by what had happened um you know and i'm both with this and with with all of the the true crime stories i've written i'm always so grateful for the people who put their trust in me because i think that's so you know it it, it adds so much you know when you can humanize the person and really put them forth as a full human being um i i think it really it touches us on a level that it otherwise would not just hearing the mechanics of a crime so to speak i was pretty moved by Marianne's story and the years she spent together with Kitty prior to the murder was fascinating. And her personal problems after the murder were really sad. She, she didn't really have anyone to talk about it to, except for her neighbor, Carl Ross, right? right? He's a really interesting character. The guy that could have saved her life, but didn't. Right. And when the police came to question him later, he was really cagey and evasive and had to have known that what he did was wrong, but refused to admit any guilt. Right. Well, well, and actually, and Carl, if, if you remember, he actually gets arrested that morning for disorderly conduct because, first of all, he was very, yes, he was very cagey with the police and, and wasn't straight with them when um, they were questioning him. And then he insisted on being in the Marianne's apartment when the police were talking to her. And, uh, you know, was just kind of being obnoxious and, you know, was already drinking at that time in the morning. So the police officers threw him out and he ended, he got angry and, and kicked a, kicked the bottom of the door and splintered it. So he ended up getting arrested. I mean, that's how out of line he was. So he was, and I never spoke to Carl Ross and could never find him. Um, and I don't believe that he ever gave an interview because, I mean, I, I looked and I really tried to track him down. He was about the only person that I really couldn't find out what happened to him. I, the trail went cold after about 1979. So we don't know whether he's still alive or not? No. No. have no idea. And especially sad about all of that was that he was a really good friend to her. He, he was her confidant, which makes this betrayal by him even more disturbing. Sure. Well, Carl was gay, too. So, you know, they shared that that secret. And um, you know, Carl was a poodle trimmer. He had a, a poodle a poodle grooming business that was actually right there in Kew Gardens. And they had gotten to know each other from the neighborhood and become friendly. And uh, Kitty actually bought a dog for from Carl. She bought a poodle for Marianne as a gift and named Andrew. So, yes, I mean, he's certainly, cer- they were certainly friends, and he let her down in, in uh, you know, every way imaginable. And Marianne did not know about that until decades later. You know, she never knew. And after Kitty died, you know, Carol made a point of, of spending a lot of time with Marianne, you know, to comfort her. And I, and I think there's probably some guilt there on his part. Knowing, you know, but but Marianne was never privy to the secret that he could have saved her. She didn't know that until years and years later. You write in detail of the extensive interviews police have with the residents of this complex. And part of the mythology of this story through history has to do with the Martin Gansberg New York Times article. And that number 38, which sticks in everyone's mind. Can you explain how he came up with that number and how it's become such an important part of the story over the years? Sure. Well, I interviewed uh, Martin Gansberg's son, and and I put the question to him because, of course, this was a very big thing in his father's life when he wrote this article. And I asked him, well, you know, how did your father come up with the number 38? And he says he counted, you know, from his notes, the number of people he talked to. And because Martin Gansberg spent two days in Kew Gardens going back and forth, uh, you know, talking to as many people as he could. And he counted the number of people he talked to who said that they, yes, they saw or heard part of the crime and didn't do anything. So that's where the number, number came from. And, uh, and as far as there were, then the number 38, um, I guess there were people who were confused because it said 37 people didn't call the police because they said Carl Ross was the so-called 38th witness and he eventually did call the police but not until too late. Now, 
you know, just in the last few years, there's been the revisionist versions of the Kitty Genovese story and people saying, oh, well, no, a lot of the neighbors called the police. Well, that's nonsense. I mean, in my opinion, that's just utter nonsense. Why not say so at the time? Because once the story came, I, I mean, I just don't believe that for a moment. Um, I, there was a, a gentleman named Michael Hoffman who I interviewed, and he was a kid at the time, and they lived across the street. And he said that his father, they when they heard the screaming, his father did make a call. That I believe, but they didn't know that Kitty had been stabbed, so I think they just put it, they just called it in as a woman was uh, got beat up or something like that. Uh, but anyway, as far as the claims as, oh, well, a lot of the neighbors called the police, no. that That's absolute nonsense. And I'll, and I'll tell you how we know that. After this New York Times story came out, the other papers and, you know, radio and television, they descended on Kew Gardens because they were all wanting to do follow-up stories on it and talk to the witnesses more and, you know, oh, well, why didn't you people call the police? And that's when the excuses came out, like, well, if she had been home, this wouldn't have happened. Not one person said, well, I did call the police. You know, that didn't, that wasn't said for another 20, 25 years, something like that, which is why I, yeah, I, I just discount that one. That would be the perfect, if they had gotten the story wrong, wouldn't it have been the perfect time back in 1964 when the press is eagerly, you know, the competing papers are eagerly want to speak to anyone? Um, you know, isn't that the time to say it? And the police during their investigation, are they're just gobsmacked, just disgusted as they're writing these reports and hearing these excuses, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it is important to note that this was not the first time that the police had seen um, inactive bystanders. What, what stood out for them in this particular case was that there were so many and this was a crime that had just played out over such a long period of time that it was 30 minutes. I mean, certainly, the you know, the police, especially in, in places like New York City, you know, the bigger cities like that, they were certainly accustomed to having uncooperative witnesses. You know, somebody sees a shooting or something or and they don't want to get involved, you know, some a quick crime. Or, but the fact that from the perspective of the police, they thought, well, what have these people got to lose? All they had to do is make a phone call. You know, it's not even that anybody, they expected anyone to run down the street, but instead they got a lot of attitude. And then people who were very resentful of, you know, well, I don't have time for this. You know, I just, I don't know what happened to her. I don't know her. So, yes, they were, so this was the one that really stood out for them because of the, the time that it played out, the number of witnesses, the location, you know, these were supposedly good citizens and, just an, an, an epic fail of humanity, so to speak. So you refer to Mosley as a serial killer, and it's three women he kills, correct? Right. And he's a, a sociopath, as you've already said. Oftentimes with serial killers, we, we see an escalation of crime, right? It, it starts small and eventually builds up to murder. Can, can you talk about this path of escalation for Mosley? Yes, absolutely. Well, Mosley started... Housebreaking, um, about a, maybe a year and a half before the Kitty's murder. And the first time he did it, it was really sort of on impulse. He was driving around at night, and he saw an open window. And he, a house, he, you know, stranger's home, and he just decided to crawl in the window. And he did, and looked around, and, you know, he managed to get in and get out without the people ever waking up. And that first time, he didn't even take anything. It was just sort of that, um, you know, that, that thrill, if you will, or just the, I, th I think control has a lot to do with it, too, with the type of criminal who is going to be so bold as to sneak into a stranger's house. So it starts out with that, and then he starts doing it more often. He's going in houses at night, and he starts stealing things, particularly television sets. And then it escalates to sexual assault. He sexually assaulted a couple of women on the street, um, you know, for instance, you know, comes across a woman who's waiting for a bus at five o'clock in the morning, pulls a gun on her and orders her around the building and forces her to perform oral sex. So it was that kind of sexual assault. And then it escalated to murder. And, you know, and, in, you know, interestingly, we're not, 
we know that Mosley was responsible for at least two murders. He believed he was responsible for three. And there was, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you how much you, you want to get into it, but there was a uh, the murder of a girl named Barbara Kralik, which Mosley had confessed to, and there was somebody else who was a gentleman named Alvin Mitchell who was standing trial for that. And, you know, Mosley confessed to it, and then he recanted his confession. Now, I believe that Mosley did sneak into a house and kill someone, and I before this would have been before Kitty Genovese or Annie Mae Johnson, his victim before Kitty. Uh, and I believe he thought it was Barbara Kralik, but I believe it was someone else that he attacked. And he had just gotten the victims confused. So we don't know for sure who that third actually would have been his first uh, murder victim was. Back after a few brief messages. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. And we have returned for the final time. As part of that fascinating confession that he makes where he admits to murdering Annie Mae Johnson, he tells police how he kills her. He said he shot her six times. The police at first don't believe him because the coroner had determined that she'd been stabbed six times instead. Yes. Yes, exactly. And and at that point, the police, because he talked about Annie Mae Johnson's murder right after Kitty's. And... At that point, a lot of the police just threw up their hands, and I thought, oh, he's making it up. This is this is one of those nut cases. He's just a serial confessor. But mostly cool, you know, cool as ever. He tells them, no, I, I read that in the paper, too, that she was stabbed. The coroner was wrong. I shot her. And <laughs> the rest of his confessions to Kitty's murder, I mean, he was able to tell the police where, Kitty, where he had dumped Kitty's belongings. They exhume Annie Mae Johnson's body, and they discover that sure enough she was shot with a 22 now a, a 22 um makes very small um entrance wounds and what probably happened was that um 
well, by the time Annie, when Annie Mae was taken in for her autopsy, the wounds would have been so small, so, so slight, that the coroner just mistook them for stab wounds. And certainly that's no excuse. I mean, a coroner is supposed to be much more thorough than that. But yes, that was indeed the case. When they, when she was exhumed, it was discovered that yes, she, she had been, had, had indeed been shot instead of stabbed. And part of what made his MO so disturbing is that he was into necrophilia, right? Yes. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And there, psychiatrists have a lot of um, theories about that, about why the appeal of that for people to whom it appeals. Um, and, I, and I, one of them is, and I suppose it's as good as any, that um, it's possession. And a lot of times, this kind of a this kind of a sexual aggression, even the kind that leads leads to homicide is about there's a big control component there and that would be the you know the obviously the the ultimate control and possession um so yes yes he did that was also one of his uh, one of his things so to speak so mosley besides confessing to the murder even leads the police to evidence he'd discarded even the murder weapon so there, were, there was never any question he was guilty but he he needed to be defended, of course, and his defense team's concern during the trial was that he'd get a life sentence and not a death sentence. Correct. Because New York, at this point, still had the death penalty. Right. Well, Winston Mosley's attorney, Sidney Sparrow, knows that the only defense that they can possibly use is the insanity defense. But the insanity defense, by as, as far as you know, in legal terms, it, it's very, it's defined as the person must not be aware of the, the nature of their acts. And they, you know, did they know it was, do they know the difference between right or wrong? And in Mosley's case, well, he certainly knew the difference between right or wrong. Um, and then he took the stand in his own defense and the jurors, you know, see this very intelligent, articulate man up there and, and I think to this day, I think there's the perception of, you know, well, mental illness or, or in, insanity. That means, you know, someone who's, you know, sitting there just babbling and, and screaming and, you know, is never coherent. Um, so certainly the insanity defense, you know, mostly did not meet the definition of legal insanity. And he was convicted pretty quickly. You know, they it was the guilty verdict and he was sentenced to death. His death sentence was actually then overturned in uh, 1967 on a technicality. Um, the appeals court said that the judge should have allowed his attorney to bring in more expert witnesses to testify on his mental state. So his sentence was commuted to life in prison. And then it was the following year, 1968, where he escaped. He had planned to, he had been, he was in Attica prison in western New York, and he planned an escape. He injured himself on purpose, so he would be taken to a hospital outside of the prison. And he was taken to a hospital in Buffalo, New York, and he escaped. He overpowered his guard, es escaped, and he was missing for three days. There was a three-day reign of terror, and that's a whole that I, that's covered it in my book. But that's a whole uh, you know other topic. So, but he was recaptured. Um, by FBI agent Neil Welch. You know, in three days, they got him in a house in Grand Island, and he was returned to prison. Uh, yeah, that that's quite an exciting story. You don't expect those extra twists once he goes to, to prison. And I don't want to use the word, I don't want to use the word adventures, because it's horrific what he does during his time as a fugitive. Yeah, it was a rampage. Yeah, yeah, it was just horrible. Did he ever explain why he did that? Was was he just reverting back to his sociopathic ways? Do, do you think he'd been planning that? Well, he definitely planned the escape. You know, there was no question about that. And he knew, um, again, this is a very intelligent man, he knew he could not escape from Attica Prison, um, you know, as far as, you know, making a run for it or anything like that. So he definitely, he figured he could escape from a hospital, and he was correct, and he did. And, you know, as far as the, com the crimes that he committed, it just, as far as why he did it, well, 
why did he do any of the horrible things that he did to women? There was something in him and um, that drove him to commit horrible, violent acts against people, particularly women. So, I'd like to circle back to the Genovese family, if I might. They are the, the living victims, and as you write in your book, they don't really participate in the first trial because they were too busy dealing with their own pain. Right. But Kitty's siblings do take an active interest later on in Mosley's parole hearings. Yes, that is correct. And actually, that really started when, in 1995, uh, Mosley appealed. He wanted a new trial. He wanted his conviction overturned, and he wanted a new trial. And by this time, both of Kitty's parents had passed away. So her brothers and sisters, her her three brothers and her sister, decided that this time they were going to go to the trial. And they wanted to make sure that he did not get out of prison. And from then on, they stayed very actively involved in it as far as making sure that he stayed in prison. So I do want to ask you something. I, I did an episode a few weeks ago about Frank Costello and his enemy, mobster Vito Genovese. <laughs> and I was surprised to see Vito Genovese's name appear in your book. Could you talk about his, his relation, I should say alleged <laughs> relation to this case? Uh, none whatsoever. Vito, <laughs> Vito Genovese, the mob boss, had was no relation to this Genovese family. Kitty had an uncle named Vito Genovese. Um, and I can tell you, having grown up in an Italian family myself, uh, there are only a handful of first names that any of us use. So, <laughs> uh, but, uh, the yes, yeah, so she had an uncle named Vito Genovese. Um, and he had actually, uh, I believe, I believe he had, te- he had testified at the first trial as far as, you know, he was the family member who came in and said that, yes, he had, you know, went and identified his niece's body. But that's something that was brought up later. In fact, uh, Mosley tried to say that in 1995 that, well, maybe, you know, he didn't kill Kitty. It could have been because she was the niece of this mobster. That's all nonsense. And in fact, one of Kitty's brothers had to take the stand to say, you know, in 1995 at Mosley's appeal that, no, we are absolutely no relation to that family. So, so that's where that whole rumor was started. That was a, something that Mosley cooked up because he was hoping that he could maybe um, cast some reasonable doubt that there was, oh, well, she was killed because she was the niece of this big mobster. There's No, that's absolutely nonsense. There have been a lot of books written about this case and documentaries made, and as you've already pointed out, lots of revisionist history about what happened in recent years. These revisionists claim that tenants did, in fact, try to call police, and we've gotten it all wrong over the years, which you've corrected. I'd like to ask you more about your research in this book. You've gotten the personal interviews, of course, but if you don't mind bragging a little (laughs) about what other sources you found that helped you separate this account of the murder and its aftermath from the other books out there. Well, I spent a total of seven years on this book. Um, most of that in the research. The actual writing of the book, I think, took me about six months, you know, maybe a little bit less. Uh, so that years, the years that I put into it was all research, and that was tracking down everyone I could find who had ever known Kitty Genovese, um, anyone who was there when the crime was committed. Um, there was many people, of course, who had passed away, but I spoke to their children, um, and, uh, going through the police reports and I was, uh, I spoke to a couple of the surviving detectives, uh, visiting the locations and a big part of it was interviewing mostly, you know, my, my correspondence with him, um, you know, to really try to put this together. So I really tried to be as thorough as I possibly could because as far as I was concerned, you know, when I started out, um, when I first started researching the story, that's when the, the revisionist, revisionism was really coming up. That, well, maybe this, you know, the Times had gotten the story wrong and it had been exaggerated or whatever. And, and I had no um, 
stake in it, so to speak. I mean, as far as I didn't start out thinking, oh, yes, okay, well, I'm going to prove, prove that this, you know, I, sort of iconic story was just, um, it's not what it should have been, and it's been, you know, it should be revised. And I was completely open, I, I, and I, which I think is the way to, to approach nonfiction. You go where the, the facts take you and where the story takes you. So and that's what I did, and and I devoted a number of years to it, and um, I, and I do believe it is the most thorough account that um, that could possibly be written. I have a final question to ask you about where this murder fits into the annals of true crime history in the United States. I mean, there's been a lot of good that's come out of this tragedy, hasn't there? Well, there is. I mean, obviously, this was, you know, one of the most notorious cases of the 20th century. It's certainly one of the most notorious cases in, in true crime. And the good that, that came out of it, so to speak, was that it did spur a lot of research into um, psychology, into the what became known as the bystander effect. Sometimes it's called the Genevieve syndrome. It also helped... Um, launched the 911 system because one of the you know the case received so much publicity at the time and there was talk about well maybe it was easier to call the police now of course back then you could just dial zero for the operator and ask to be connected but there was no 911 system and the Genovese case was was um, cited as an example of well you know maybe if it had been even easier for for people to call the police rather than having to look dial zero or look up their local precinct so i certainly think it helped you know with that it helped launch that maybe sooner than than it would have happened and um you know kitty has been written about many many times i mean i i, I don't think you could even count the number of articles that have been written about her you know when you're talking about or her case rather uh, when you, for everything from psychology textbooks to you know magazine stories to sermons given, I mean it's referenced in film, and it's typically used to show people, you know, get involved. We sh- we do we have to help each other. You know, err on the side of, of caution, because unfortunately, we still see cases like this today. You know, where there are people who are witnessing a crime and not you know, coming forward, not doing anything to help. And, you know, it's very interesting when after Kitty came out and I was, you know, I had a number of book signings and speaking engagements. And in one of them, someone had commented to me about really how little things had changed, unfortunately. And they said, you know, if it happened today, we'd have 38 cell phone videos of the attack. And I thought, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I found myself as I was reading this book so frustrated, you know? And then you imagine yourself, you know, well, if it was me, I would have acted in this way. I would have run down there with a baseball bat. I would have tried to have done something. Yes. And I found it so interesting, just from a personal standpoint, thinking about the choices I would make if I were put into a situation like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it is... Um... You know, and sometimes we don't know. I mean, we all want to think that, yes, we would be the one to stand up and, and do something. But, you know, when I was writing the book, I really tried to put myself in the place of the witnesses. And 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 I, and I don't say this to excuse their behavior or anything like that. But I, I think the reality of it, you know, being, you know, you live in New York City, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning and you're awakened by these horrifying screams. I mean, you'd be, I'd be scared to death. Really, to be awakened. And that's not an excuse not to act. But I can understand some of the people who said, well, you know, I just didn't even get out of bed. I was too afraid to move. So, and I think that's important because it's very easy to judge others and say, oh, well, you should have done this and you should have done that. And and sometimes we have to do that. I mean, we certainly have to have, you know, standards and and morals and and call people on their um, less than ideal behavior. But like with anything else, when it comes to humans, there are always there's a lot of factors at work there, and it's not all. It can't all just be summed up by the word apathy. In fact, apathy I think was the completely incorrect term for Kitty Genovese. I would say for what happened, um, I it wasn't apathy. If anything, it was fear and self-interest. 
So for people who want to learn more about you and your book, where should we direct them? Oh, sure. Uh, well, my books are available at, at all bookstores and on Amazon, um, you know, Barnes & Noble, pretty much any bookstore. Um, I do have a, a website, which is katherinepalinero.net, and they can also find me on Facebook. I have um, uh, my author page on Facebook and also a page for Kitty Genovese and for my uh, uh, latest book, uh, Absolute Madness. Oh, I'd love to hear about that. Could you tell us what that's all about? Sure. Uh, Absolute Madness is another true crime story. It's the story of serial killer Joseph Christopher. And he was active in New York in the early 1980s. Um, and unusual serial killer because he targeted black males. And he, um, you know, we more often think of serial killers targeting women to begin with. But he killed, um, his victims were, were men and they were black. And that caused, Joseph Christopher was white, and that caused a great deal of racial tension at the time. And that was another story that I started looking into and found out that, oh, there was so much more to it. And that's a, that's a really, you know, captivating story. Incidentally, Absolute Madness has just been optioned for film, too. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's a pretty frightening and shattering story. There hasn't been a good film made about the Kitty Genovese story, has there? No. Um, you know, the only ones that, I mean, her brother Bill Genovese uh, co-produced the, the film The Witness. And that was quite good, but that was more about his experience um, being the brother of a, of, a, of, a, of a murder victim in a high-profile case. And... As far, I know that there have been like maybe a couple small films about it. The one, the only one I really remember was uh, there was a movie that came out in the seventies, made-for-TV movie called Death Scream, that was based on Kitty's story. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> but I think all you have to say is nineteen seventies t- movie of the week, and you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. I appreciate it. Again, my guest today has been Catherine Pellinero, author of Kitty Genovese, A True Account of a Public Murder and Its Private Consequences. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.